Um, thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, we are very lucky to have two speakers today that are gonna kind of be piggybacking off of each other. Um, so the first speaker is uh, Dr. Ed Pickering. Um, Ed is Assistant Professor of Medicine and he's the Director of the Interventional Pulmonary Program. Um, uh, and he um, is a good friend of mine, a colleague, I've known Ed for a long time. Um, he is definitely an expert in airway management and in hemoptysis. And so Ed is here to talk to us today about the evaluation and management of life-threatening hemoptysis. Um, and following his talk, Dr. Van Holden, who's also part of the Interventional Pulmonology Group, is going to continue the talk. Um, and so it'll be a two-parter. So thank you all for joining us. Ed, go ahead and take it away, bud. All right. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, everybody, for, uh, for letting me give you a quick talk. So yeah, we were talking about um, management of life-threatening. People talk about massive hemoptysis, things like that. I think a simpler term is life-threatening, which we'll go into. Um, and I have no disclosures relative to this discussion. And really the goal of this is to keep it kind of simple, simple concepts about what you can do in the ICU when it presents. Um, so really it's review the evaluation and also the management techniques that you can do to stabilize and, and come up with some, some treatment options. Um, so just to go simply over, you know, definitions, um, massive hemoptysis, life-threatening. Again, I prefer life-threatening because I think it's a it's a little bit clearer and simple definition, right? Because if you look in the literature about massive, um, you know, there's a, there's varying ones. Is it 100 mils in six hours, 600 mLs in 24 hours, more than two episodes in 24 hours? Um, and really, that's why life-threatening is better um, because simply, if it's bleeding, that results in cardiopulmonary dysfunction or failure. I think that's an easier and simpler term, right? And people with comorbidities, um, you know, COPD, where your physiologic dead space is increased, you really can't um, tolerate nearly as much bleeding as a young, healthy person can. So really, I think the quantity doesn't matter as much as what is happening to the patient. Are they having, um, you know, cardiopulmonary dysfunction, um, significance we're causing respiratory failure or intubation. Um, so there's a lot of different etiologies. If you go and look, you'll get a laundry list of 50, 60, 70. Um, you know, in developed countries, oftentimes carcinoma is the primary um, one. In developing company uh, countries, uh, infection, especially TB, tends to be the highest. But again, it can be any number, um, and some history um, is helpful figuring out. But simply put, infections and neoplasms are going to be your the predominant that you're going to see, and especially in developed, it's going to be the malignant causes. So when you are presented with a patient that, again, we're not talking quantity, we're talking what's happening with the patient. Your initial goals are really, it's simple, stabilize the patient. Bad lung down, everybody talks about that. It does help just with gravity flow so it doesn't spill over to the good lung. That's if you know which side. Um, and then airway protection, right? If they're having respiratory failure, um, you know, you need to intubate them. It's really important that you put in the largest tube that you can, if you can get a nine, great, but you want to at least have an 8.0 ET tube, and I think that's a pretty simple concept for you guys, but you really need to be able to do therapeutics down through your ET tube, so the larger you can get in, the better. Um, and when it first happens, so we're going to talk about, let's say the patient is intubated, right? Um, there's, uh, you know, there's different opinions and, and controversies maybe about the role of bronchoscopy, but it really does have an important role in the initial stabilization Right, so one, when it comes down, what are you gonna do next? If you can put a scope in there and get a sense of which side, it can help you lateralize. That's gonna help you talk with your colleagues um, in the next couple steps. 
In addition, you can go and therapeutically aspirate the good lung, help with ventilation, oxygenation. Um, it also gives you a conduit to do some topical therapies, which are really going to be temporizing measures and kind of clear your view. Um, there are some studies where people do large lavages of saline and, you know, 100 mLs, 200 mLs, 300 mLs. I really think that most of those are just to kind of give you a little bit of vasoconstriction um, and to kind of clear uh, clear your scope, clear your view, so you can make an assessment of what to do next. Um, one that you can do and may actually form, well, actually does, will help form a clot distally um, and give you some tamponadas thrombin. And that's available in most pharmacies. It comes as a lyophilized powder that you reconstitute and you can actually give through the therapeutic channel. The other role, once you've kind of localized, suctioned out the blood, is it gives you a, a, an ability to further go on with some of your endobronchial um, guidance for different tamponade therapies, which we'll talk about next. And that plays an important role in the initial stabilization so you can move on to other diagnostic and treatment endeavors. Um, so one way that you can tamponade right, selective mainstem intubation. You have your bronchoscope in, you can clear, um, clear the, the field enough so that you can actually see what side the bleeding has come from. If you can do that, it's not bilateral. You know, with your bronchoscope, you can use it, you know, um, kind of like a bougie, and you can also drive onto the side that's not involved and selectively intubate. So, you know, that, that, that's certainly one, one role with the bronchoscope and then tamponading therapies. Other tools that you have, and these will all fit through the working channel of your therapeutic scope. And just to reiterate, please make sure you get a therapeutic bronchoscope. Do not try and mess around with a diagnostic scope that's a 2.0 working channel. Make sure your respiratory therapist, wherever you are, is getting you a therapeutic scope. You need that 2.8 or more working channel. Um, so this is an example of uh, Fogarty balloons. A lot of you guys may have seen these. Um, so it's important to know the different French sizes when you when you get them, right? So four French, five French are giving you nine to 11 millimeters total inflation um, diameters. Those will help you isolate your segmental um, or low R bronchi, but they're gonna be a little bit small for, you know, um, main stem occlusion. Six French and eight French, now you're getting up where you can actually occlude um, main stem. And what this helps you do, again, if you put it down and you can lateralize where the bleeding is coming from, you can put the balloon down, inflate it, and it will let you tamponade and form a clot distal to that while also helping spill over to the other, um, the other lung while, um, you know, you stabilize the patient and move on to the next step. These are small enough that you can also suction around them so you can clear your view to make sure are you getting effective um, um, control of where the bleeding is coming from. You inflate the balloon, you suction, no, no blood's coming beyond it, then you know you're at least um, protecting the, the uninvolved portions of the lung. Uh, moving on to other ones, um, a lot of you guys may have seen bronchial blockers. Again, when it comes down to, so a lot of times in IP, you'll hear it, diameters, sizes, they matter, right? So Bronchial blockers come in different sizes, uh, frequently seven and nine French. Most of the ones that we have here are nine French, which matters. Um, so nine French is about two points, three point three three. So that's almost three millimeters, right? So if you have a seven O ET tube and you're trying to put a 
three millimeter uh, blocker down, you have no room to put your scope around it to drive um, to the side to lateralize it. So they come in different, um, you know, different shapes. Uh, most of them, again, are at least that they have here are elliptical. Your spherical, just because it's shorter, is better for your right main stem. Um, kind of over here, you can see an example. This is including the right lower lobe where um, bleeding is coming from, and you can leave it in place for up to you know 24, 48 hours while you um, get on to more definitive management. But again, it lets you control your airway while you uh, move on. The other thing is that, as you can see, so again, it comes with the adapter, so you can attach it to the ventilator. You can put your bronchoscope down through another port, and as you come with your bronchial blocker, if you see down right here, it's got that little loop around it where you can lasso the end of your bronchoscope so you can drive it selectively to right or left um, main stem. And then this part here lets you tighten down uh, the blocker. They do have um, uh, markers on them so you know whether it's at 50, 55, 60 centimeters. It's really important that you make note of that. Um, so you can tell if there's migration of the of the blocker. Sometimes you'll have the patient on the ventilator and all of a sudden their peak pressures, you know, go to 80 and their tidal volumes go to zero. Most of the time is that blocker is now migrated and is occluding the trachea. So those are some things to, to think about. Um, but again, the goal of these is to tamponade, give you some control of your airway while you move on to the to the next steps. And when it comes to you know, diagnosis and localization. So again, it depends on what study you're looking at. I really don't think chest radiographs, unless you have somebody with a history of like aspergilloma gives you that high. Um, traditional CTs a little bit higher. Um, bronchoscopy honestly is not really, is not terribly good at the diagnosis of the underlying cause, but again, can help you localize um, and, and stabilize the patient while you um, figure out what the etiology and, and where it's coming from. But I think one part that gets lost sometimes, it's really the role and value of your MDCT with contrast or what you can order here is, you know, a CTA um, with delayed phase. And that part is important. If you just order a CTA, um, they will do a PE protocol. You'll beautifully opacify the bronchi or the uh, pulmonary artery circulation, and you'll miss out on the systemic circulation, which is really um, involved much more of the time than your PA circulation. So if you're going to order the scan here, and it's really important to do so to help you with your IR colleagues or, or other ones, order the CTA with delayed phase, and that'll give you your systemic circulation. Um, so you've done that and you've you know, localized it. Um, the bleeding is oftentimes from your bronchial arteries, 70-90% uh, of the case, you can have non-bronchial artery circulation in up to 10 to 30%. There was a beautiful case of a subdiaphragmatic um, AVM that came off the lima that goes down subdiaphragmatic and actually comes up into the um, into the uh, thoracic cavity. So again, that's where it's really important that you get the the delayed phase. And when it comes down to embolization, um, BAE or bronchial artery embolization is very good um, short term, you know, 60-90% efficacy uh, for people with such as, again, um, aspergilloma. Um, they do tend to have recurrence oftentimes a few months later. 
Um, if somebody gets an embolization and they're still bleeding, they could the, the potential is they embolize the right um, feeding vessel. And so it's good to have when you talk to your IR colleagues and say, I think they need to go back for a repeat one because it does recur, you know, 25%. Um, the biggest thing that people worry about is um, transverse myelitis um, due to spinal cord insult when you're doing the embolization. And then when it comes down to surgical options, um, surgery is always an option, but it's really the option kind of a last resort. It has a very high uh, morbidity and mortality, and it's really for refractory cases. Um, again, tends to work better with isolated, whether it's um, tuberculosis, cavitary lesion, um, pulmonary aspergilloma, or somebody has like a blown out um, esophageal, um, bronchial fistula collection where there's really no options but again those are it's really reserved um in refractory or cases where your your other measures don't work because of the morbidities and mortalities um so i wanted to give you an example um of a case that kind of ties all these concepts together so this is a the guy that i saw i don't know it was a number of years ago had a history of squamous cell cancer uh his right upper extremity actually had an amputation um found to have widely metastatic disease presented to an outside hospital with you know massive hemoptysis but to me it's life-threatening was intubated for airway protection and transferred to, um, to university so first scan that gets done you see this um you can see kind of this cavitary um area on mediastinal bone windows same thing on lung windows you say to yourself, okay, that's very consistent with squamous cell, right? It tends to be cavitary. So, you know, next steps, you know, bronchoscopy, you're not sure about airway control. So you do a bronchoscopy, um, make sure that there's no, um, if there's bleeding or active, um, bleeding or any blood clots. So this is what it looks like on bronchoscopy. You can see probably this clot was tamponading it after it's suctioned out. You don't see it. It's it's parenchymal, there's no active bleeding. So you're pretty happy. And so next steps, um, you know, should he go to IR? Should he get radiation um, uh, rat on for, for, for control where they can radiate and help with bleeding? Should they go for thoracic surgery? So again, he's intubated. He went down to IR. They found a torturous bronchial artery. Um, was successfully embolized, um, says there was no further bleeding, bleeding uh, radiation oncology, um, opted not to do um, any radiotherapy. So we all felt good. Everybody goes home, patient gets extubated, goes home. So two weeks later, presents back with recurrent life-threatening or massive hemoptysis, had a PEA arrest, was intubated, undergoes bronchoscopy. Again, right lower lobe is the source. Um, and then a bronchial artery, uh, bronchial blocker was placed. Um, so one important caveat, if you guys remember from the early part of the case, um, what was missing on that CT scan, that was a dry CT scan. Um, he did not end up, he did not get a um, CTA with delays phase or an MD CTA. So since he came back, he gets it this time. And if you notice here, it indicates a very large right pulmonary artery pseudo um, aneurysm, axial and coronal images. I'm just gonna take you back to the other one. So if you keep your eye on this image, this area here almost certainly would have shown that uh, pseudo aneurysm if he'd gotten um, contrast. Sorry, I'm going the wrong way. So 
he goes down to IR. You can see the IR. Um, this is a PA catheter going down to the lower lobe. Ah, go back. So with contrast, you can see this very large aneurysm. Gets coils, um, embolizes, um, and you can see that the that the pseudoaneurysm is now excluded. So I hope you can see the value of if if he'd gotten that scan that we talked about up front, the second insult probably could have been avoided. So I think again, it's very important, um, and it's kind of summarized on the next slide is that. It requires a multidisciplinary approach, right? There's the role of the intensivist, maybe your anesthesiologist, depending on what you have, your pulmonologist, interventionalist, your, um, but your radiologist to protocolize your scans appropriately. Um, your interventional radiologist is a key component. And again, for, for people that are refractory, your, um, you know, your surgical colleagues. So really it comes down to, you need to control the airway and stabilization first. And again, suctioning out the blood, lateralizing it, um, you know, endobronchial tamponade uh, mechanisms. And again, the bronchial blocker gives you a more um, permanent, so to speak, or better control, in my opinion, of the airway if you're going to send them off the floor to get that, um, to get that CT scan to, to localize the exact bleeding source before they go to IR, because they're going to go off the floor for a while. So it's important to have control of the airway. And really, um, you know, that scan gives you a, um, a wealth of information and it helps the interventional radiologist, um, you know, figure out which vessel they need to, to embolize. So I hope that case kind of drives home the point of that stepwise approach and how, how imaging can really play a role. And again, the etiology will guide your approach, right? If it's a vasculitis and it's, you know, it's bilateral or if, um, you know, somebody comes in, I mean, it's simple things, right? If they're, if they got bad liver disease or they're, you know, leukemic and they've got a platelet count of eight, yeah, you need to replace their blood products. Um, but again, you need to, to also, you know, stabilize their airway. And then um, not sure if Ananth is on this, but he did a, he, he wrote a really nice um, review um, with this exact topic and it's published in the, in Journal of Thoracic Disease or JTD uh, from 2020. If you guys want to, want to look that up and read through it, he did a really nice job with it. Um, so I'm happy to, before uh, Dr. Holden gets on, I'm happy to take any, any questions or, or anything that you guys um, have, but thank you very much for, for your time and attention. That was awesome, Ed. Very practical, very helpful. I think many of us have probably had this scary bleeding airway. So a reminder of how to approach it is, is really great. Just curious, from like a practical point of view, like how much of, the stuff, if you know, if I'm working in a community uh, ICU and uh, have access to therapeutic bronchoscopes and uh, uh, maybe some Fogarty balloons, how much of this should be attempting to do at a kind of primary center and how much should I be transferring to a tertiary referral center? Like, what do you roll your eyes at that comes in and what do you think is appropriate to transfer? No, I mean, so one, it's knowing the institution, but I think having these things and, and yeah, I had it on the slide and I forgot to mention it. It's important to know what you have at your site and what you don't. I think, you know, if you're a small center that you don't have IR and things like that, your role is to, you know, stabilize, stabilize the, the patient in the airway. And if you don't have IR and all of that, and they came in with enough hemoptysis that they needed to be intubated, I think you, you know, you stabilize them as, as again, as, as best you can. And then you call a center that, that has it. I don't, I don't think, I don't think, I would ever want somebody to feel bad about making that 
phone call. Um, and I, th I think that's important depending on, on where you practice. But yeah, your role, stabilize them. I think most hospitals have bronchial blockers. You just need to figure out where it is. Fogarty's are pretty straightforward. A lot of, you know, they're really um, borrowed from vascular surgery. Um, so most places have those. And again, those will just give you some control. And if you can tamponade and form clot, that'll at least control your airway for a little bit. But if you have the bronchial blocker, and they're not as straightforward to places they seem, and that's where um, having a big ET tube and, and knowing about it. But if you have access to those, I think those are good to place before they get transferred. Um, so that's my, that's my two cents on that. I mentioned to you guys, this is a part, a two-part talk. Uh, second part of the talk is uh, a friend, colleague of mine, Dr. Van Holden. So she's uh, assistant professor of medicine and interventional pulmonary, like I said, um, and she's going to piggyback off of Dr. Pickering's talk and talk about tracheal abnormalities in the ICU, which is also something that we run into all the time. So thanks, Dr. Holden. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As Andy mentioned, I'll be discussing tracheal abnormalities in the ICU. And the objectives of my talk are to identify risk factors for tracheal complications in the ICU, describe the management of tracheal stenosis, as well as discuss bronchoscopic evaluation of tracheal malacia. So this study recently came out this year, um, evaluating the incidence of tracheal complications in patients with, with COVID-19. It was a retrospective cohort study at a single center all patients admitted to the ICU who underwent mechanical ventilation for at least two weeks were included. 30 of these patients had COVID-19, and there are 45 patients without COVID. And they found a high incidence of tracheal complications. The top picture demonstrates a full thickness tracheal lesion on the bronchoscopic image. Um, and you can see a representative CT scan next to it. And then a third of patients in the COVID-19 group had this finding. The other complication was tracheal esophageal fistula, which was identified in 13% of patients in the COVID-19 group. And this is an image of the TE fistula on bronchoscopy and on the CAT scan. So together, almost half of these patients with COVID-19 had a tracheal injury during their prolonged mechanical ventilation. The differences between the COVID-19 population and the control patient population is that all of these patients were prone. They were more likely to receive steroids as well as receive a higher dose and longer course of steroids. They had a lower PDF ratio during their second week of mechanical ventilation. And this hypoxemia can contribute to poor wound healing and tracheal injury. So again, half of these patients had a full thickness tracheal lesion or tracheoesophageal fistula, and they also had a high incidence of subcutaneous emphysema, pneumomyositidum, or pneumothorax. So if you see um, patients with COVID-19 have any of these findings, yes, it could be secondary to barotrauma, but you also want to consider if there's a tracheal injury. So why does this happen in this patient population? There are several proposed mechanisms of injury, the first of which is proning. So with proning, there is an increase of the cuff pressure on the tracheal walls. Patients with COVID-19 also have a prothrombotic and antifibrinolytic state, which can contribute to microvascular injury and necrosis. 
There's also high viral repli replication within the tracheal lumen, and this can weaken the mucosa. And as I mentioned previously, they're on high doses of systemic steroids, and they're hypoxic. So this contributes to atrophy and altered healing of the tracheal wall. This pathogenesis can also lead to the, the development of tracheal stenosis. So after intubation um, or tracheostomy within days, you can get tracheitis or mucosal ulceration, which progresses to fibrin and cartilage necrosis um, at the time frame of weeks. And then two months, as the area tries to heal, it becomes a hypertrophied scar. And this can cause healing or recurrent scar um, or recurrent trachostenosis. So the contributors are elevated cuff pressures um, that can lead to tissue necrosis and trachostenosis. So this is a, one of our patients. It's actually Andy's patient and, and mine. So it's a 40-year-old woman with a history of asthma and sleep apnea who was hospitalized for seven weeks. And she had ARDS secondary to COVID-19 pneumonia. She was on VV ECMO for three weeks and had a tracheostomy for five weeks. She was decannulated one day prior to discharge. She saw Dr. Levine in her post-ICU clinic two weeks later. At that time, she had symptoms of intermittent cough, sputum production, wheezing, orthopnea, and dyspnea with walking one block. She received pulmonary function tests and a six-minute walk test. She could only walk um, 100 feet on the six-minute walk test, and she became hypoxic, um, down to 83%. Her pulmonary function tests show a moderately severe restriction with a moderate gas transfer defect. And so at this point, she was thought to have um, lung injury related to her COVID-19 pneumonia was recovering. But on retrospect, her flow volume loop was noted to be suggestive of a fixed central airway obstruction. She subsequently had a CT of the chest and it demonstrated post-tracheostomy tracheal stenosis. The length was about two centimeters and the diameter nine to 10 millimeters. At the basis of the lungs, she had post-COVID um, fibrotic changes at the basis. So in terms of benign central airway obstruction, um, this can occur due to endoluminal obstruction or extrinsic compression. And it's typically been said that um, for airway stenosis or obstruction um, down to eight millimeters, patients present with exertional dyspnea and strider occurs with a diameter of five millimeters. However, it's important to take into account what is the patient's baseline cardiopulmonary reserve and what is the characteristic of the lesion? Where is it located? Uh, what's its morphology? Is, what's the mechanism? Is it malachic? And the severity and the extent of narrowing. So these patients can present with dyspnea, cough, wheezing, and strider which is often misdiagnosed as asthma and COPD. And in particular with our patient, she had a history of asthma. And so it's easy to uh, misdiagnose asthma exacerbation um, instead of trachostenosis. And this result results in a diagnostic delay. So up to half of patients with trachostenosis will present with respiratory distress. The five-year incidence of post-tracheostomy tracheostenosis is a about 3%, and 
and their risk factors include obesity and elevated cuff pressures. So elevated cuff pressures of 30 or more can contribute to mucosal ischemia. Um, so it's important to check cuff pressures in all of our ICU patients. The severity of the trachostenosis is graded based on the Meyer-Cotton grading system. So grade one is zero to 50% stenosis, grade two is 51 to 70%, grade three is 71 to 99%, and grade four, 100%. So the severity of the stenosis may help inform um, if a patient needed to be intubated, what size tube would fit, and what would be the management approach for the stenosis. So this can be graded based on CAT scan or bronchoscopic evaluation. Um, airway stenoses are typically divided into simple or complex stenosis. So a simple stenosis is web-like and membranous, is usually concentric and short, and there's no damage to the cartilage. On the other hand, a complex stenosis tends to be long, at least a centimeter in length. It could be circumferential and have contraction scarring. It could also be associated with malacia. So for patients with simple stenosis, bronchoscopic interventions tend to be more successful, um, about 70% success rate. And these include balloon dilation, making radial incisions using cryotherapy, and doing topical medications such as steroids. Complex stenosis, and the mainstay of management is surgical resection, so tracheal resection with anastomosis. If they're not a candidate for surgical resection, but in a chronic airway device may be allowed, such as the tracheostomy or stent. And then the last modality is bronchoscopic interventions because they don't respond as well. Thus, it's important to have a multidisciplinary approach, um, specifically in complex stenosis patients. So the diagnostic evaluation of tracheal stenosis is typically by chest CT. And there's different types of CT scans to help identify the airway caliber. Spirometry is usually not used to diagnose tracheal stenosis, and you don't want to send these patients for spirometry because it can precipitate respiratory failure. Um, but it's important to identify airway obstruction based on their flow volume loops if they've already had it. And then finally, bronchoscopy. The bronchoscopic approach to tracheal stenosis varies, whether we do a rigid bronchoscopy or flexible approach, depending on um, the lesion, um, the facilities, making sure we have equipment available, staff, and it's a multidisciplinary approach again. But the goal is to stabilize the airway, help resolve symptoms, and improve the patient's quality of life. So the bronchoscopic management is usually multimodality. This is an image of a rigid bronchoscopy. Image B shows the radial incisions. So it looks like a Mercedes sign. Uh, we avoid the posterior membrane. And making the radial incision first followed by balloon dilation helps to improve the caliber of the trachea. Um, with using electrocautery cuts, there's thought that the heat therapy can precipitate further mucosal injury. So we use cryotherapy or cold therapy to help mitigate that. For patients who are not a candidate for bronchoscopic intervention, um, they may be considered for tracheal stent placement or a T-tube, which is a, looks 
like a tracheostomy combined with a tracheal stent or a chronic tracheostomy. This is a video um, of a tracheal stenosis. It's a complex tracheal stenosis in a patient with COPD and multiple readmissions or presumed COPD exacerbation. She required baseline oxygen and with the complex tracheal stenosis and her comorbid comorbidities, she was not a candidate for resection. She ended up with a chronic tracheostomy. So with surgical resection, um, it's the tracheal stenosis is resected and is an end-to-end -end anastomosis. Um, oftentimes patients will have a stitch in place called a girlo stitch that helps to prevent their neck from hyperextending um, for the first week after surgery. The outcomes from tracheal resection are, are pretty good. Um, so in this large study at MassGen, uh, which is a large center for tracheal resection, they had a good or satisfactory outcome in 96% of patients who underwent tracheal resection, but there is a um, significant number of complications or morbidities. Um, a quarter of patients have anastomotic complications. And those that are at risk of complications are those who have a tracheostomy at the time of resection, a T-tube, laryngeal involvement, or are undergoing a redo tracheal resection. So the European Laryngological Society um, made this statement this year, it's a call to action given the high number of COVID-19 patients who have been intubated or undergone tracheostomy, that there's gonna be an unprecedented increase of airway stenosis. So they recommend every patient who had COVID-19 um, requiring an ICU stay should be seen by an ENT or other airway specialist to proactively diagnose early complications. Um, the rate of complications, um, so specifically subquatic stenosis, was 10% in a group of patients referred to ENT at Beth Israel and MGH. So our patient initially underwent uh, bronchoscopic intervention with those radial incisions and balloon dilation. However, she had recurrence of her tracheal stenosis and subsequently underwent resection. Um, she had some poor wound healing uh, after the tracheal resection treated with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and she's currently doing well and is able to do all the activities that she would like to do. The next complication that can occur with patients in the ICU is iatrogenic tracheal malacia, and this is specifically related to an overinflated endotracheal tube cuff. Um, this is called an ice cream cone sign but you can note it on CT scan, and it's important to review the CT images for your patients to identify any of these tracheal complications. So tracheal malacia, tracheal stenosis, TE fistula, tracheal injury. As I mentioned previously, the cuff pressure should be monitored, and the recommendation from the Respiratory Society is to check it every shift, and if the tube is changed, if its position is changed, or changing the volume of air in the cuff or the leak occurs. And this leads me to my last topic um, involving tracheal malacia is excessive central airway collapse. So within excessive central airway collapse or ECAC, there is EDAC and TBM. So EDAC refers to excessive dynamic airway collapse 
which is an invagination of the posterior membrane. So you can have forced expiration, dynamic airway collapse, or hyperdynamic airway collapse. On the other hand, trachobronchomalacia is a problem of the anterior cartilage coming in. So there's softening of the anterior cartilaginous membranes and collapsing leading to trachobronchomalacia. So what is the prevalence of ECAC? Um, so it is highly prevalent in patients that have pulmonary diseases or respiratory symptoms. And these are the patients that we often see in the ICU. They can also be identified in half of patients with COPD and 13% of patients with emphysema. And excessive um, central airway collapse can be caused by a variety of different mechanisms, uh, such as tracheal surgery or tracheostomy, prolonged mechanical ventilation, or prolonged endotracheal intubation. Um, so this is what we most often see when we, when we get consulted um, for ECAC in the ICUs. They've been um, on the mechanical ventilator for a long period of time. Um, other etiologies could be extrinsic tracheal compression, like goiter or mediastinal tumor. Recurrent respiratory infections can lead to acquired ECAC. Um, there tends to be an association with chronic airway inflammation secondary to GERD. Relaxing polychondritis is often associated with TBM and pulmonary diseases such as COPD and asthma. The most common um, etiology is idiopathic. So the diagnosis of ECAC um, is defined as greater than 50% collapse. But even though it's defined as greater than 50% collapse, it doesn't mean that uh, it's necessarily causing symptoms. Um, so you can identify ECAC based on either bronchoscopy or CAT scan. And the CAT scan is on the expiratory phase. When we evaluate ECAC with bronchoscopy, it's called a dynamic bronchoscopy, and we do it with minimal sedation. So the patient is given a lot of topical anesthesia, um, minimal amounts of Versed and fentanyl. And this is so that they can respond to commands and take in deep breaths and blow out so that we get a better assessment of their airway collapse. It's done in this supine position with a small scope, and we perform dynamic maneuvers at seven locations. So the upper, mid, and lower trachea, the right main stem, BI, the proximal and distal left main stem. And at each of these locations, we ask the patient take in a deep breath and we take a picture and then blow out as hard as you can and we take a picture. So it's a forced expiratory collapse. And this is example of doing that in a patient with COPD and a saber sheath appearance trachea. You can see that there's some definitely malacia at the lateral walls there. So asking the patient to breathe in and blow out, you can see that there's some malacia of the lobar, the right lower lobe. 
So how does CT compare to bronchoscopy? So CT correctly diagnoses malacia in 97% of patients. So bronchoscopy is considered the gold standard, but CT is a good non-invasive way of identifying malacia. So again, for patients in the ICU, if they're getting a CAT scan, um, you can review it closely and see if there's any evidence of malacia. And that may help determine um, what your plan is if when patients get extubated. How is the severity of ECAC determined? So when looking in a group of about 50 healthy volunteers, they're completely healthy, um, trachomalacia was defined as a 50% reduction in their cross-sectional area. Their cross-sectional area was measured one centimeter above the aortic arch and one centimeter above the crina. So the representative images show a third percent reduction and then the bottom right, 65% reduction. So the bottom right would um, count as tracheomalacia. However, they also found that 78% of these patients met that criteria. And these were healthy volunteers that did not have symptoms. So a large proportion of people walk around with tracheomalacia that doesn't cause symptoms. And so the severity of ECAC um, threshold for mild, moderate, and severe is the following. So mild is considered 70 to 80%, moderate 81 to 90%, and severe greater than 90%. So in patients who are intubated, if they have severe malacia, that's when um, they tend or could have recurrent respiratory failure or need reintubation. So non-invasive positive pressure ventilation acts as a pneumatic stent. And this is an example of a CPAP trial or CPAP titration in an awake patient. So the CPAP is titrated um, higher until there's less than a 50% collapse of the trachea. So how does this apply to our patients in the ICU? So anytime you're doing a bronchoscopy in a patient, it's important to take into account um, what's the size of your scope. Is the patient spontaneously breathing? Um, if they are, do you notice the malacia? What's the severity of the malacia and where is it located? If the malacia is in the low bar areas, then positive pressure would be helpful, um, especially when they're extubated. And then you can titrate the PEEP uh, to minimize the malacia, and that helps to give you an idea of what to extubate the patient to in terms of their level of CPAP. Patients with um, ECAC tend to have a lot of comorbidities, such as COPD and asthma, GERD. They could also have paroxysmal vocal fold motion, sleep apnea, and obesity. So all of these comorbidities get treated. Um, for patients to, in the outpatient setting, uh, when they get evaluated, um, they may be evaluated for stent placement or tracheobronchoplasty, and that is an extensive evaluation with many tests, given the uh, comorbidities or the uh, morbidity associated with those procedures. So tracheomalacia in the ICU, it tends to be a chronic disorder that can be exacerbated by acute illness. Um, so patients who are uh, who have respiratory failure 
and tracheomalacia, sometimes they end up getting a tracheostomy until they recover from their acute illness and then get decannulated. It's important to have a low threshold for suspicion based on the bronchoscopy and CAT scan. You can consider extubation the CPAP. And it's also important to identify this um, or be aware that it can cause posterior membrane injury during tracheostomy. The risk factors for tracheal complications in the ICU include proning, steroids, hypoxia, obesity, and elevated cuff pressure. And you can consider these tracheal complications of tracheal injury or T. fistula if they have subcutaneous emphysema, pneumomenostitum, or pneumothorax. It's important to carefully review CT scans for evidence of tracheal complications. The management of a simple stenosis can be a bronchoscopic approach, whereas complex stenosis tends to be a surgical approach. That's the end of my presentation.